Pennsylvania Prisons and Parole podcast, we often speak with the men and women of the Department of Corrections about the programs in place to help prepare the incarcerated population for reentry. But we don't often hear from the people who have gone through those programs. We're going to change that today when we visit with Kurt Danish. Kurt was released from SEI Frackville in 2020 after 23 years of incarceration. A successful reentrant himself, he now dedicates his time to helping other reentrants become successful upon release. All right, Kurt, you were in DOC custody from 1997 to 2020 when you were paroled. Can you tell us what the day-to-day life was like for you while you were incarcerated and then what the reentry process was like? Um, well, incarceration was very much like Groundhog Day. It was the same thing every day. I would say I spent the first five years kind of angry, disgruntled that I was in prison. You know, I wasn't yet to the point of accepting responsibility. Um, after that five years, with a lot of guidance from the lifer population, I kind of got steered into educational pursuits. And uh, once I sat in a classroom, and I should say for the first five years, you know, I was in the RHU a lot. I got a lot of misconducts. Um, but af- after I sat foot in a classroom, I stopped going to the hole, and that really became my escape from incarceration. In regards to reentry, um, you know, I fell in the 90s. Reentry is relatively a new fad. Uh, there wasn't a whole lot in the majority of my sentence for reentry. And after the juvenile lifers had their opportunity, I think the DOC really started implementing more. Unfortunately, I didn't quite benefit from it. I was on the tail end of that. But um, the RSO program started, which was really kind of gave you a head start for reentry. But largely, I relied upon my education. And to me, education created opportunity when I came home and options. But um, once I came home, <laughs> I, I compare reentry to landing in a foreign country with nothing but the clothes on your back, minus the clothes on your back. You feel like an outsider. You feel like there's a tattoo on your forehead. You feel like everyone knows you've been to prison. And, uh, you know, I always say the day before I left prison, I was a maximum security inmate. I needed shackles to be escorted anywhere. The next day I was released from prison and I didn't have shackles on, but you still feel like they're there. So you kind of bring a piece of prison home with you. But it, it, go ahead. I'm sorry. So what changed in you from the guy that was going to the RHU to the guy that was taking advantage of the programming? Because we talk a lot with folks within the DOC about all the great programming that's available, but that is only as good as the people that make use of it, right? What made you, uh, what changed in you to make you accept the programming that was available? Well, I think my brain, we obviously know now that the juvenile brain, I went into prison when I was 18 years old. So it it took me a few years to be able to see, you know, understand consequences, investing in your future today. But um, largely, I I stopped blaming other people for my problems. That was a big thing when I went into prison. I could blame everybody for every problem I had in my life. And and again, it was the older inmates that kind of took us under their wing and kind of gave us some wisdom and taught us to be responsible and, and just encouraged the strengths they saw in us instead of criticizing the bad in us. So, you know, for me, I committed a crime that I have tremendous remorse for. Uh, I couldn't process that in a meeting, so I was angry. But once I came to terms with that and forgave, you know, the system that I used to see as an enemy and realized it wasn't an enemy, you know, it's there for a reason. And it took a lot of years for me to forgive myself. And my faith played a large role in that transformation for me to see beyond myself. You mentioned the RSO, that's the Reentry Services Office that's in every state prison. What other programs were you involved with while you were incarcerated, and do you think they helped set you up for successful reentry? I I did just about every program available in the Department of Corrections, and then when we ran out of them, we kind of started some. 
But uh, education, I was lucky enough to get into the uh, Pell Grant Second Chance program, so I left incarceration with an associate's degree in business management. I left with a diploma of paralegal. I did violence prevention. I did um, smart recovery. Uh, we started a long-term reentry support group, which was specifically for individuals who served more than 10 years and were getting close to coming home. And uh, the, the only real wish I had is that those programs started earlier because when you're in the Department of Corrections serving a long sentence, a lot of that programming occurs at the tail end of your sentence instead of the beginning. And I think I could have had a better head start had I gotten into them earlier. Do you think you were ready to get into them when you first got there? Not when I first got there. But, you know, I served 24 years. I think around eight years I was definitely ready for some programs, you know. And aside from the, the programs that the DOC loves to highlight, there was something inside you that made you successful. What did you personally bring to the table that made your reentry successful when so many people are not? I think it's support. And my support, what I call my support system, came from many places. I mean, we always think support system is on the streets or outside of prison, but a lot of my support system was inside prison. Um, I, I can't give enough credit to the lifers and the guys that had time in. Uh, they saw potential in me. They reminded me every day that there's light at the end of the tunnel, that I will be going home one day. And, and, and my faith. I mean, I always say that there was a process of my incarceration where I went through denial, anger, then acceptance and said, okay, I'm here. What am I going to do with it? And then the hard part is looking for a purpose. You know, when, once you're in there and you know, well, I have to be here for this long. It doesn't matter if I'm ready. You know, this is the amount of time. So you really have to find a reason to get up every day, make your bed. And that, that was something an old head taught me. He said, if you make your bed, you're not going to sit in it all day. So I would make my bed and then figure out what I'm going to do with the rest of those hours. And, and then you just have to maintain and feed your level of hope, which is, I think, one of the hardest things to do in the Department of Corrections to have hope of why you're waking up every day. But, but there is purpose in there, and you just have to find out what it is. You've talked a couple times about getting support from the other men that were in the facility with you. Talk about the Certified Peer Specialist Program. I think you got some help from them, and then you later gave back by becoming a special peer specialist, right? Yeah, I was actually hired or trained in 2012 as a peer support specialist. And it was a brand new program Then I think Frackville was one of the first prisons and when they first sat us down and explained it to us, you know, we all sat in a room and we said, this isn't going to work. <laughs> and then we were told that they were going to pay us top pay. So we were like, we'll give it a try. But it, it ended up changing the entire culture of not just the prison I was at, but the Department of Corrections. And, uh, you know, just having an outlet, someone you can talk to, someone that you can trust, even guys first coming in the system that were in way over their head and traditionally would make pretty serious mistakes, you know, when they first came in. They had someone that they could sit down with and ask those questions. And, and even in reentry, I had guys coming to me saying they're getting ready to go to parole. And we would sit down and do mock parole interviews and really kind of help prepare each other for that and to come up with a plan of what you're going to do once you go home. What are some of the biggest mistakes people make when they first come to prison? <sighs> Borrowing, gamble, and stealing. <laughs> Those are the three uh, uh, number ones. But I, I think one of the biggest uh, mistakes people make is they watch movies. And they come in and they think it's going to be like they see on TV. And prison's not like it's on TV. If there's one movie that's accurate, it's Shawshank Redemption. And the only reason I say that is because it talks about or it illustrates the relationships between the men that are incarcerated. You know, but but um, and another one of the mistakes is, you know, guys come in and like me, they're angry at staff and they take it out on staff and they end up going through that cycle of going in the RHU and having that stigma of being the trouble inmate. And it takes a long time to kind of wear that off. So we talked a lot about your time 
incarcerated. Now talk about your life today. What are you doing today? Well, I mean, I'm, I'm running a reentry organization, which we can talk about. But besides that, I'm, I'm engaged to my high school sweetheart, who I didn't have conversations with for 24 years. I didn't even talk to her. Um, what brought you back together? How did you reconnect? Her mom says our love story wasn't done, and, and that's the way it feels to me. I had a rule. I wasn't going to date for two years. I, I think that's – and I, I still – kind of think that it's one of the biggest mistakes we can do is immediately get out and get into a relationship. Uh, I broke that cardinal rule, but for me it's worked out. Um, and we have a dog. We live in Carlisle. I go hiking and I ride a mountain bike. I'm, I'm living a life I never imagined I would have. That's what I was going to ask. When you were at your lowest point, when you were incarcerated, what did you think your life was going to be on? be like when you were released and how was that different? Or were you even thinking about being released? You know, when I first went in, I, I thought my life was over. I was sentenced to more years than I'd been alive. I couldn't fathom what life would be like at 40. And here I am at 45. And, it, and, and I remind myself how young I am now. Um, but I, I think I imagined that I'd be doing manual labor, that, you know, there was a bar and I couldn't get above that bar because of my felony conviction. And I mean, the truth is there is no bar. The bar is in our head. We can achieve and accomplish anything we want out here. Or achieve as little as we try, you know. You mentioned the reentry organization that you're working for, Tomorrow's Neighbors. Yep. Tell us a little bit about Tomorrow's Neighbors. Well, Tomorrow's Neighbors is largely kind of uh, formed around the peer support program. As I was getting ready to come home, I was very nervous about coming home. I, I, I mean, I wanted to come home. You know, people say some people want to stay in prison. I've never met one person that wants to stay in prison. Um, I think for me, the biggest anxiety was dealing with the public. I felt like I had the smell and the stench of prison on me that someone would meet me and they'd immediately go, that guy's been in jail. Nobody would give me an opportunity. So I was looking for an organization that did the peer support in the reentry field and I really couldn't find it. So I had a college professor at the time while I was incarcerated that one of the projects was to come up with a business plan. So I made a business plan that was Tomorrow's Neighbors. And he said, well, when are you gonna do this? And I said, well, it's a business plan, I'm not gonna do it. And he said, why aren't you gonna do it? And really, he pushed me to do it. And I formulated the plan. I incorporated it while I was still incarcerated. And I knew what I wanted to do when I came home. We're talking with Kurt Danish from Tomorrow's Neighbors, a reentry services organization. When you talk about the feeling that everybody would know your background when you got out, what was true about that when you left? And what was wrong about that? Like, I'm sure there were some people that, that there were some roadblocks that were thrown up in your way being somebody that came out of prison with a felony conviction. How did you get around those, and, and what was that process like for you? Well, when I came home, I knew I, I needed to build a foundation. Anybody in life has to build a foundation. Most people do that in college, and high school. Um, so for me, I, I found a church before I found a job. You know, I, I knew I needed that kind of community. And I, I'm very open about my past. I, I, don't, I don't open it up in a conversation that, hi, my name's Kurt Danish. I served 24 years, but I don't hide it. And... You know, we talk about ban the box, it's a great policy, but with Google, it's kind of hard to hide from our past. But I, I will preface this with saying that I'm a Caucasian male coming out of the Department of Corrections. I can walk down the street, people don't assume I was in prison. I'm not the traditional reentrant. There's people that walk down the street and people assume they were incarcerated whether they were or not. So I don't want to paint a rose-colored you know, picture of that. But I will say that if you're open and you're honest and you're doing the right thing, my experience shows the majority of people will support you. And I don't mean just tolerate. They'll support you and kind of help you along the way. And with 2.5 million Americans in prison, everybody knows somebody in prison. So it's not the judgmental world that we think. When you talk about 
your release from from um, your facility, did you go directly to a home plan or did you go to a community correction center? What was that process like for you? Uh, well, I, I had a home plan that a friend gave me. Um, my first day, my mother and my sister picked me up and our first stop was a phone store, which I'd never been on a cell phone or the internet, so that was my priority. Uh, we got a phone, we went to Target. I was so overwhelmed I had to leave the store. But, um, and, and there were roadblocks. I mean, I, I ended up with an ankle monitor on parole, not something I foresaw coming. It wasn't something I was happy about, but I was so appreciative to be out here that that's, that was a, a tiny thing to tolerate. But uh, I did go to a home plan and uh, thank, I'm thankful that I didn't have to go to the halfway house because we all don't like halfway houses. They serve a purpose and, and there's benefit of them, but a home plan is, is the number one option, I think. So you stayed with your family? No, I stayed alone in a home plan. It was a, a small apartment that I lived in. So. Okay. Um, throughout your time, was there a, a, an employee or a DOC staff member that you think either on the inside or on the parole side that you think really helped you along the way? I couldn't limit it to just one. And uh, there, there's, it's funny because there's like one person in each area. You know, there was a psychiatrist by the name of uh, Dr. Pravitz that was phenomenal to me, helped me early on really come to terms with my incarceration, a lot of the trauma I was dealing with. Um, Education-wise, there was a teacher at Frackville, Mr. Pitts. He was awesome. He really motivated me, encouraged me to get in the education, hired me as a, a peer facilitator, which gave me a lot of confidence. Uh, programs, Mr. Reichner at Frackville, his thinking for a change class, I mean, he was just phenomenal, the way that he could explain complicated concepts. And in reentry, I mean, Deputy Secretary Kelly Evans right now is just phenomenal, really pushing a lot of these reentry programs. And uh, my parole agent, I've had three different parole agents. Every single one has helped me along the way. I mean, that's one thing I really want. You know, when you're inside, you imagine what parole is, and it's not. And whether that's through evolution, I don't know what it was like 10 years ago. But parole right now, if you pay your fines, you don't do drugs, and you work, you barely know you're on parole, except you have to put in a travel pass. So So what are the biggest misconceptions? Is it a lot of... um kind of gossip and, and guys that maybe haven't gone through it yet all talking together or what what are the misconceptions that, that you found well when you're incarcerated your only exposure to parole is parole violators who you know come back with horror stories that you know i'm back just because my po didn't like me or you know and uh i'm not saying that couldn't happen it hasn't been my experience it hasn't been my experience with a lot of people i've seen but parole is what you make it i mean you're you're gonna be you know parole's not freedom it's a leash but it's a long leash, and they make it longer if you're doing the right thing. But uh, your parole agent is your support system. I mean, that's the guy you got to be able to trust, or a woman, and and that's the person that you really got to be honest with because that's your support team. If you're not honest with them, they can't help you. And what's the parole process like? Like, how often did you have to check in? Are you still under supervision? I'll, I'll be on parole until I'm 78 years old. I mean, that's just what my sentence is. When I first came home, I was I went to the district office. I had to give a urinalysis. I didn't meet my PO that day. The next day he came to my home plan, met me. And uh, I, I now see my PO maybe every two months. I do a urinalysis when he needs it. Um, un- unless there's something major going on in my life, it's just during his normal checkups. And, and he's very polite. He doesn't rummage through my things. He doesn't uh, you know, come to my house unannounced. You know, But I've also not given him any reason to do those things. I see it on TV and it's always the guy who's frazzled. He's got a stack of yeah. files on his desk and he doesn't know what he's doing. But it, it seems like it's a lot. It's a collaborative effort, right? It, my PO comes off more as a social worker than a law enforcement, which I really do respect that you know, they're not coming with the guns brandished anymore. They're not wearing flak vests usually, at least in my area. I can't speak across the state. 
they don't show up at my work. You know what I mean? They're really trying to make your transition as, as smooth as possible. And I think the training's changing. You're seeing, you know, a lot more social work. Yep. Call it trauma-informed care yes. from, from, from the beginning of incarceration all the way through the end of supervision. You touched on something that I wanted to circle back on, that, that first trip to Target after you were released. <laughs> And just all the changes from 1997 to 2020. In my mind, as a guy, kind of an old guy now too, it's like, oh, that wasn't that long ago, 1997. But then I, I start counting on my fingers and like, yeah, that, that was a long time ago and the world really has changed. What were the biggest differences and how did you overcome them? I mean, technology was huge. And, you know, we, we don't have access to cell phones in the Department of Corrections or the Internet. But we do have Microsoft. You know, I got certified in, in Microsoft Office, which kind of gave me at least the, the baseline of understanding of computers. So I caught on relatively quickly. Um, it's small things. Honestly, like last week I had opened a, a little carton of creamer. And you, you guys take it for granted, but there's this little safety thing on there that I did not know how to pull out and, and ended up spilling half of it out. So it's really a lot of small things. You get into a car and you see the technology in a car is just amazing today. And driving, they they renewed my driver's license while I was incarcerated, so I left with a driver's license. You know, twenty years is a long time not to drive, so that took a little getting used to. But, but people, I mean, people don't change. That was my biggest anxiety of dealing with individuals. Human nature hasn't changed. People are still the same way. People, I think nowadays, you know, they're more. You use the word trauma, and you can have those conversations now about mental health, about trauma. In the '90s, we didn't talk about that. You know, we stifled our emotions. We used substance abuse. So. In a lot of ways, the world has kind of improved. Especially as an incarcerated man, right? I'm sure there was not a yes. lot of um, emotions at that, or talking about your emotions at that time. Oh, well, it's funny you say that because before prison, no. But while I was incarcerated, I think that's where I had some of my like deepest conversations. You know, prison is the one place in our society now that you'll see a 20-year-old, 30-year-old, and a 50-year-old male walk in the track together talking. That doesn't occur in society much anymore. So I, I think... A lot of my knowledge was gained inside talking with different people. At Tomorrow's Neighbors, we always talk about that. We leave prison with certain advantages that people in society don't have because we're used to dealing with people from all over the world, used to dealing with difficult personalities. We're more resilient. We're more motivated than some people out here. Do you keep in touch with the men you were incarcerated with? Matters who's listening, no. <laughs> uh, Yes, I do. And through Tomorrow's Neighbors, I've met other people coming out. But I have people that I consider family still incarcerated. And to be honest, we, I've talked about lifers before. There's men that deserve to be out here more than me, that I wouldn't be the man I am today if it weren't for them. So, you know, I, I work in advocacy and, and we're really pushing. We, we want the lifers home. And there's a lot of people out here pushing for that to occur. So, You've touched on your faith a couple of times. Were you a man of faith before you went into prison or did that some, was that something that grew while you were incarcerated? My faith was planted in the county jail. A pastor would visit me after I was arrested that I didn't know before. And he planted the seeds in me, and he stayed in touch with me for all of my incarceration. I've since had lunch with him. And over the years, it, it seemed like, I mean, from a spiritual perspective, God put people in my life to kind of foster that. So it, it definitely grew while I was incarcerated, and, and now it's a central part of my life. When you talked about your mother, your mother and your sister picking you up from that uh, from the day you were released, um, what was your incarceration like for them? Hmm. What struggles did they overcome, and what advice do you have for families and loved ones of incarcerated men and women? Well, we say inside, and it's true. Nobody does time alone. That our families are incarcerated with us, and uh, 
the, the ripple effects of the trauma that we've caused, we don't fully understand until we come home. You know, and I, I would tell everyone before, if you have a loved one that's coming home, have conversations with them. Talk about two things in particular, what your concerns are and what your expectations are, because they can be markedly different. Before I came home, me and my mom had that conversation, and her concern for me was that I would never be financially able to provide for myself, which wasn't even on my radar because I knew I was capable of working. I worked inside. So it was just good to have that conversation and kind of soothe that concern and then let her know my concerns. But uh, What were your concerns? My concerns were it was definitely interacting with people. I mean, it was just... Because of that stigma that you thought was going to be there? The stigma and because we're incarcerated. I dealt with only males except for the occasional uh, female staff member. So there was an unfamiliarity with that when I come out. Um, the world has changed in that regard, too. Uh, styles have changed. Um, etiquette has changed from one gender to the other or somewhere in the middle. Um, it, it's just a very, uh, it was overwhelming for me to imagine what that was going to be like. And my sense of humor. You know, in prison, we get galley humor. I mean, we, we, we laugh about things because it's uncomfortable. And you come home and, and I'll say jokes now to my fiance and I'll see her blush and I'll go, oh, I crossed a line there. So, and my... Cursing. I'm still working on not cursing. So. <laughs> well, you're doing a great job so far. We appreciate that. Um, although we would edit it out if you did, so people would never know. Kurt Danish with t uh, Tomorrow's Neighbors. Tell me about your organization. Well, like I said, we, we mirrored it off peer support. So we started when I came out offering just that peer reentry support. So all of our mentors are successful reentrants themselves. And like I said, when you're in prison, all you see is the failures coming back. You forget that success happens every day. So when you meet your mentor from the door, you know success is possible because you're staring it in the face. Um, and then we've since grown to having a, a reentry housing solution is what we're calling it. It is not a halfway house. It is not uh, a facility. This is a home for people that already genuinely want to do well in reentry, that have demonstrated that while they were incarcerated, that are on the right path. And we want to provide them the support to do that. You know, We've tended to naturally, it happened organically. We work with a lot of people with 10, 15, 20, and one guy with 37 years of incarceration. So there's some added obstacles for people that serve that kind of time, and we're really looking to help those individuals kind of build a foundation when they come home. And it's been amazing, but Cumberland County has gotten behind us so much. Uh, bipartisan lawmakers, probation, parole, the Department of Corrections, all of them have supported our house, and Cumberland County actually awarded us a $1 million grant to fund our housing program for five years. So. It's one of the, it is the fastest growing county in, in Pennsylvania, right? So I it think is. they're going to need all those services as they continue to grow. Yep. And, and I think that's what they're realizing is the benefit of giving reentry support. You know, It's one of the few, I think, bipartisan issues, I think, is left or right, everybody can see the need for this kind of support right yeah we we got letters from democrat and republican lawmakers they both sat down with us they both fully supported what we're doing you know and, and it's amazing in america to find anything they can agree on and reentry is one of them right now so april is reentry month yep. and i see uh, executive producer kurt over there on, on social media our big push for the whole month has been asking folks why reentry matters to you. I think I have a pretty good sense of why reentry matters to somebody uh, like yourself, but for an elevator pitch, if somebody you just met asked you why is reentry important, what would you tell them? I'd say because over 90% of people in prison are coming home. So I think, you know, reentry support is one of the fastest and most immediate ways to make communities safer by reducing the cycles of crime and recidivism. I, I think nobody wants to return to prison. When you're leaving prison, it's very fresh in your memory. I don't want to return there. 
And I think some people end up there because they think it's the only option. So I think if we give enough support in the reentry process, we will stop a lot more people from going back into prison. Danish with Tomorrow's Neighbors, you are really pretty active on the DOC social media sites. And I, I think part of it's like a chicken and egg, right? It's part of your job is to be open about your uh, past and, and your history. But part of what makes you good at your job is because you're open about your past and history. What, why are you more open about your history now than maybe some other people might be? I think it's, I really, one of my main missions, I want to combat the stigma of being incarcerated. You know, that was one of my biggest concerns coming home. And I, I, I want to smooth that transition and I want to educate people about reentry because I don't think it's that people are against reentry. I think it's people aren't aware what reentry is and why it's so important. So I'm, I'm just trying to pave the path for the next guy behind me. What's next for you and what's next for tomorrow's neighbors? Where would you like to see the organization five, 10 years down the road? I would, I would like it to grow, and fortunately, Penn State is actually studying our reentry house, which will create data that can be used not just by Tomorrow's Neighbors, but other organizations, and even the Department of Corrections ways to improve reentry. Uh, I'm going to continue my education. I'm trying to go for my bachelor's for criminal justice. Um, I'm going to continue to serve on the boards and the committees I am on across the state, uh, and, and to push some of the reform efforts. You know, we want probation and, and parole reform. We want parole for lifers eventually. And we want to improve reentry, and and I'm a big believer that we can work with the system to accomplish that. It's not a us versus them, and I'm trying to eliminate those silos and kind of get us all on the same team. Thanks again to Kurt Danish for joining us today and for the work he does to support reentrance through Tomorrow's Neighbors. You can learn more about Reentry Month on our social media channels at Corrections PA on Facebook and Twitter. On behalf of executive producer Kurt Boat, thank you for listening. Until next time. <laughs>